0: The Chinese Communist Party, ruler of what's officially called the People's Republic of China, represents a multifaceted and increasingly formidable threat to the United States and our allies. In this intense competition, the U.S. must ensure its warfighters have the most capable and technologically advanced weapons in the world. That's the surest means to deter wars, or if push comes to shove, to win them. Should America's technological superiority be allowed to deteriorate, Beijing will be more tempted to undertake aggression that could have been avoided and that the U.S. might have to struggle to defeat. With such threats and challenges in mind, the House Armed Services Committee has established a Future of Defense Task Force focused on the U.S. Defense Innovation Base. On this special edition of Foreign Policy, my colleague Brad Bowman senior director of FTD's Center on Military and Political Power, is joined by Seth Moulton, who after graduating from Harvard, served with the Marine Corps in Iraq, and who is now a Democratic congressman from Massachusetts and the co-chair of the Future of Defense Task Force. We're glad they're joining us to discuss the goals of the task force, the health of the U.S. defense innovation base, and the growing threat from China. I'm Cliff May, and we're pleased you're joining us too, here on Foreign Policy.
2: Seth Moulton, I want to welcome you to this special edition of Foreign Policy. Given the incredibly hectic schedules that members of Congress confront, I'm especially grateful that you would make the time to join me for this defense dialogue.
1: It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: Oh, thank you so much. I'd like to focus our discussion, if you don't mind, on kind of three things. One, the future defense task force that you help lead. Two, the China challenge, uh, and then three, the status of the U.S. defense innovation sector, if that sounds right. I had the opportunity to discuss these topics with your Republican Task Force co-chair, Congressman Jim Banks, uh, late last year, and now I'm honored to sit with you as well. Uh, For those who haven't had the chance to listen to the podcast with Congressman Banks, I'm wondering if you could tell us what is the future of Defense Task Force and why was it established?
1: The Future Defense Task Force is a task force on the House Armed Services Committee looking at what we need to do to prepare our national security for the challenges not of next year or the year after, but 20 or 30 years down the road. And this isn't something that we usually focus on on the Armed Services Committee because we do a bill every single year to fund the troops uh, for the following year. So just sort of by necessity, we usually have a one-year timeline. But there's there's widespread recognition Uh, both in the House of Representatives, but I think especially in DOD, that we need to start thinking longer term. Ideally, this task force would create recommendations that mean that it doesn't have to exist in the future so that we're always thinking uh, and planning for what's coming down the road. I want to make sure that this country is safe, not just for me and my colleagues, but for my daughter and her generation of Americans.
2: I actually noticed in your hearing that you uh, co-chaired on february 5th you ended the hearing by saying exactly that fundamentally to quote you fundamentally we're a task force that should not have to exist can you tell us more why you said that and why you believe that
1: because really we should be doing this all the time we should be thinking about what do we need to do to prepare for the future how are we investing in the future how are we making sure that america is safe not just next year but 20 or 30 years down the road the problem is we haven't been doing that lately and China and Russia are not only catching up to us in many defense technologies; they're trying to leapfrog right ahead of us, and that presents a major national security threat to us uh, just a few years down the road.
2: With so many smart people like you, you know, in Congress and and uh, you know, veteran veterans like you, and uh, with real combat experience, and people in the administration focused on defense policy and strategy and the China and Russia threat and so forth. Why aren't there more people kind of looking medium to long term at the threat? Why do we need a task force to do this? Why why don't we have more individuals focused on on the emerging threat over time?
1: Well, let me try to answer that question in two parts. Number one, what's going wrong at the Pentagon? And number two, what's going wrong in Congress, since I think it's uh, there's blame to be spread around. Uh, first of all, the task force is is trying to get into what's going on at the Pentagon and why we're not making enough uh, long-term investments and long-term decisions. But I, I don't sit in the Pentagon, so I don't want to presuppose what the results will be. We're looking at the culture of the Pentagon, whether we're hiring the right people. We're looking at the budgeting process. We're looking at the acquisitions process and whether, uh, whether the Pentagon has the freedom and flexibility they need to acquire the latest technologies as quickly as possible. Those are some of the questions that we're asking to try to get to the root of why we're not seeing enough innovation coming out of DOD. On the congressional side of things, sadly, I think I know. It's parochial interests, and no one wants to give up their aircraft or ship that's built in their district and is a legacy system, and therefore, we don't have the money to invest in the new technologies that are going to drive the future. In a strange way, I think that Russia and China actually have an advantage here. They know that their defense budget is far more constrained than ours. So they don't have the luxury to compete with say our aircraft carriers by purchasing just a few more aircraft carriers than we have. They could never afford that. So they just have to think about how can we kill America's aircraft carriers? And it turns out that a lot of those weapon systems are much cheaper than building an aircraft carrier. So in other words, by necessity, by the fact by by the fact that they have a lower defense budget to begin with, they have to invest in technologies that will leapfrog our own if they want to compete with us. And that's put us in a very dangerous place where we're beholden to old, expensive systems, and they're buying the latest tech uh, to defeat our legacy systems.
2: Now, that's an excellent point. And I would note uh, for the listeners that one of the uh, witnesses in your most recent hearing was Chris Brose, who wrote an article in Foreign Affairs, making the exact point that you just made, that if we're not careful we're going to be spending billions of dollars on systems that are going to be nothing more potentially than easy targets for the Chinese Communist Party and the PLA.
1: And Chris used to be the Senate uh, Armed Services Staff Director for Senator John McCain. And we talked about that. And And uh, in the hearing, he he gave us a list of some of the new technologies that we should be investing in. But then I said, Chris, I think, as you well know, sometimes the harder question is, what are the old technologies we right. need to get rid of? And why are we not doing enough of that? And uh, one of his answers, which I thought was quite creative, was there just needs to be more competition. We need to have transparent competition uh, between old technologies and new technologies so that everybody can see what we need to invest in in the future and, and, frankly, what we need to get rid of.
2: When I uh, worked as a staffer in the Senate, something that I sometimes saw is when there was a proposal to divest an old system, the first thing that happens is that all the constituent groups call and they mobilize the chambers of commerce and, and, and all these things take place to try to persuade the elected official to oppose what the Pentagon wants to do in terms of divesting a system that may no longer be needed. How can we, in your view, how can we communicate to Americans, your constituents, and more broadly, the consequences? if the Department of Defense is not allowed to divest systems and create the budget space for the systems that our warfighters will need in the future to deter adversaries and defeat them if necessary?
1: Well, one thing we can do on the Armed Services Committee, both the House and the Senate side, is to try to bring in more of the warfighters, more of the generals who can say bluntly to the American public, these are future investments that we need to make and these are old systems that we need to get rid of. Look at the end of the day, you're right. There are a lot of parochial interests, and I try to inspire my colleagues to rise above them and do what's right for our national security. But if you look at how we've been spending money in just the last, you know, several years since I've been in the House, uh, we make a lot of poor decisions. One of the one of the best um, examples of defense innovation going on right now is called DIU, the Defense Innovation Unit. It's literally called that, and they've been doing remarkable things. Uh, Everyone who's been to visit them uh, supports them. But if you look at their budget, I think last year was about $41 million in total. I mean, that's a fraction of the cost of one F-35 fighter jet. And yet this is the unit in the Pentagon that's supposed to develop the ideas for the next F for the the F-45, for the next generation of of artificial intelligence, all sorts of technologies, and yet we're just not giving them much money. Another interesting comparison is that uh, in the 1960s, um, in response to the Russian threat, uh, President Johnson established DARPA. DARPA was initially funded with the equivalent of about $4 billion. So think about that, $4,000 million we've given DIU 40. And so the reality here is that we're not investing in the future anywhere close to the degree to which we used to, and it's because the budget is taken up by other things.
2: You know, I've noticed in uh, a lot of, uh, in in the hearings that you've conducted and and your comments about the task force, you really emphasize bipartisanship. Uh, You emphasize that... uh, Congressman Banks is your co-chair, not your ranking member, which as you know well is not the way it traditionally works. Normally for the listeners, normally the majority party has the chair and the the minority party has the ranking member. And we also,
1: usually the majority party has more members. And in this case, it's four and four. Which enables
2: voting outcomes and so forth. Why do you think uh, in this, particularly with this task force and this effort, why do you think bipartisanship is so important?
1: It's critical that we all get over our parochial interests, that we all are on the same page about focusing on the future and if we came out with a partisan proposal or a partisan plan whether it be democratic or republican it could easily just be dismissed by the other side the stakes are too high to do that
2: right so when the other party controls the the chamber in the future or the other party controls the white house these Important recommendations that you're going to generate may not have the staying power that they need to be implemented, not over years, but even decades.
1: That's right. And I think we use as a model some of the uh, bipartisan commissions that have achieved things in the past. Some of the biggest government programs have been uh, put in place by bipartisan uh, groups of members of Congress.
2: So excellent so before we move on uh, to perhaps discuss in more detail the China challenge in the innovation base um, can you if you would mind can you just kind of overview what the task force has done I guess in its first three months or so you're about at the halfway point and then what you plan to do for the remaining uh, few months
1: so we every single week have a briefing from uh, a a different group uh, on some sort of innovative technology. So we've had everything from uh, RAND come in and give its strategic assessments of where we're going um, against Russia and China uh, to startups like a biotech startup from Boston that came down and explained not only what they are doing with biotech, but the massive implications that this has for our national security and some of the great concerns that they have if we do not win the bio race with China. I mean, we don't sit on the House Armed Services Committee and usually think about biotech. And we certainly don't think about beating China in biotech, but actually they made a case that this is critical for our national security over not just the next 30, but the next 50 years, because so much technology is gonna come out of whoever wins this race. So we've heard from a wide variety of folks uh, in the defense innovation base, Inside the Pentagon and outside the Pentagon, we've had military officers and strategic planners come in, but also a lot of outside thinkers. And everybody is trying to help us answer this question, what do we need to do to prepare for the future?
2: That's excellent. I note that you had uh, Michelle Flournoy and Jim Tallon in your first hearing, two very respected individuals from both sides of the aisle that testified before your task force.
1: As well. Two people who've been doing a lot of thinking about this, who um, have spent some time in the defense establishment, but now have a, a safe enough distance where <laughs> right, they can right. be critical of it. Right. And, uh, and they were fantastic. They absolutely set the tone for the task force. You know, we also took a great trip uh, uh, to Southeast Asia where we saw the tug of war between us and China firsthand. We visited Thailand, Vietnam, and Cambodia, uh, three countries that are in different places in this tug of war. Cambodia is sadly more on China's side already. Uh, Vietnam is very much in our corner, but wants to see us do more. And Thailand is kind of teetering at the top of a mountain and they're not. we're not quite sure which way they'll go, although we have a very long history of partnership with uh, the Thai military. So it gave us a fascinating firsthand look at what China is doing on the ground, in the field, uh, to try to win this race against us.
2: You mentioned China. I, I'd love to transition to that fully now and kind of hear your thoughts on um, what is the nature of the threat that we confront from the Chinese Communist Party.
1: Well, first of all, I would just say up front it's much more serious than many Americans realize. Uh, I am confident that China presents the greatest economic and national security threat to the United States over the next 50 years. It's important to acknowledge that, I think, in the immediate term, Russia is probably a greater threat um, with the uh, massive nuclear arsenal that they have uh, aimed at us, some of their new weapons developments, um, their current defense technology um, that is is so capable, and, uh, of course, the way that they've worked to directly undermine our democracy, the basic underpinnings of how our country works. But when you look long term... Most analysts expect that uh, Russia is going to have a tough time keeping up. All the trends in China are accelerating quickly. Uh, just 20 years ago, no one was really worried about China and their military's ability. That's completely changed. And China is very clearly trying to compete with us directly. They want to be the lone superpower. They want to be a superpower both in economic terms and uh, in national security terms. And they're developing a surprising number of offensive weapons. So it's not like they're just developing uh, means to keep their own country safe and secure. They're developing offensive weapons. And now they're starting to export their technology to other countries. And while America for decades has talked about exporting freedom and democracy around the world, China is exporting authoritarianism. And they're giving everybody a package. I mean, literally the tech package, the surveillance cameras, the artificial intelligence, the databases, the ways to control a society just like they do at home.
2: I noticed uh, during your October hearing, uh, you quoted uh, Sun Tzu, and uh, the specific quote was, the supreme art of war is to subdue the enemy without fighting. And then you noted that uh, y- uh, your view that uh, this uh, Sun Tzu philosophy is informing current Chinese policy. Why do you say that?
1: Well, first of all, uh, Sun Tzu is a philosopher that we studied in Marine Corps training, and it's always good to understand what your enemy is thinking, <laughs> and, and clearly the Chinese are listening to them to, to as well the Chinese have not been getting into any hot conflicts uh, you look at all the different places that America is engaged around the world uh, we have taken a very proactive uh, approach to uh, furthering our national interests and ensuring peace and stability and uh, and I'm and you're not talking to a, a dove here I mean there are many of these operations that I think are wise and that I'm um, proud to support but There's also a a real concern that we're overextended. China, on the other hand, they're letting us do all the dirty work. They're letting us do all the military work. They're just investing economically. Uh, They're investing at home. Uh, They're furthering their technology. And they don't have huge portions of their budget going to uh, sustaining troops in places like Afghanistan. So in some ways, uh, China is following Sun Tzu's philosophy. They're trying to win wars without fighting them. The problem is, in many respects, we're doing the exact opposite right now. We're fighting wars without winning them.
2: Beijing has a philosophy, as you know, of uh, what they call, obviously this is a translation, but military civil fusion. In the task force, have you encountered this this challenge? What is it and why should Americans care?
1: This is something that I think veterans understand really well, but the rest of Washington doesn't seem to get. Uh, We saw on the ground in places like Afghanistan or where I was for most of my time in Iraq that, the State Department, for example, is a critical component of our national security. Uh, as General Mattis said, if you want to cut the State Department's budget, you're going to have to buy me more ammunition. China gets this fully, and they have truly integrated their civil and military functions. So they don't have any dividing line between the Department of State and the Department of Defense in, in China. They all work together. Um, they recognize that you, given any defense challenge, it might be best solved by the military or by the the diplomatic corps or some combination thereof. We, on the other hand, have a real siloed structure where the Department of State is its own separate entity from the Department of Defense. They don't share budgets. They don't share resources. They don't share share personnel. Uh, They try to coordinate. Sometimes it's been successful, but a lot of times it hasn't been. Uh, I remember when I was in Iraq for the surge, and one of the hallmarks of the surge was the partnership that Ambassador Crocker, the lead diplomat for America in Iraq, had with General Petraeus, uh, the lead military officer. And their partnership was key. They talked every single day. And given any problem that came their way, they strategized on, hey, who can best solve this? Is this something that we best solve diplomatically, or is it something that requires troops? Sadly, that's been the exception, not the norm, in our foreign policy. And the fact that this administration came in and just started to say, we're going to cut the State Department by 30 percent, and somehow that's going to be good for our national defense, just shows how they don't get this. It's a bipartisan problem. It's not just the Trump administration. Uh, I was very critical of President Obama when he responded to the rise of ISIS in Iraq uh, by just sending in American troops, because what fundamentally happened in Iraq to Open the vacuum to allow ISIS to come in was a breakdown in the Iraqi government. You remember, uh, the Iraqi army didn't get overrun by ISIS. They literally quit because they lost faith in their own leadership. And as I said at the time, you don't fix Iraqi politics by training Iraqi troops. So on both sides of the aisle, we've failed to recognize the the supreme power that comes with the State Department and and the Department of Defense working together. And China gets this. They get it really well imagine this we, we all know that um the Mar- marshall plan was incredibly successful in europe in other words what china is doing today with the civil military fusion isn't a new idea i mean they're just copying it from us like they do with most good ideas imagine if all the investment that we put into the marshall plan to rebuild europe was spent not on building roads and railways and investing in schools and rebuilding infrastructure, but was just spent on training German troops.
2: You know, when I talk to leaders in Indo-Pacific uh, Command, uh, they reiterate a lot of the points that you're making, frankly. Uh, you know, if you hear the the commander of indo pacom talk, which I'm sure you have, he emphasizes uh, development-related issues office, uh, often, you know, USAID and the effort to uh, supersize, if you will, OPIC and uh, the BUILD Act and all these sorts of efforts to make sure that we're not just going to com- uh, countries like Pakistan, Sri Lanka and say no, no, no on Chinese Belt and Road an- an Initiative, which I'm sure you heard about it in CODEL, but we're providing an alternative and we're leading with our strength, which arguably is our private sector that requires some sort of seed funding from the U.S. government. Do you have any thoughts on on the development challenge that we have in Indo-PACOM as a- an alternative to uh, to hard power sometimes? Oh, it's
1: huge because, because China has a Marshall Plan for the Pacific. It's called the Belt and Road Initiative. And they've put a lot of money behind it, just like we put a lot of money behind the Marshall Plan in Europe. And we don't have a counterpart. Now, the BUILD Act is, is helpful. It gets it, it gets its head pointed in the right direction, but it's a, it's a paltry investment compared to what China is making. And this is about winning over allies. Now, this is about convincing uh, multiple countries in the Pacific that they'd be better with us than with China. And It is a tug of war, and sadly, we're losing it on this front. One of the most successful things that uh, our military has done in the Pacific in the last two decades is our disaster relief. And Admiral Davidson, Davidson, the Indo-PACOM commander you mentioned, he gets this. It's one of his top priorities. He says, we win friends, we win allies by doing disaster relief. That's not what the military is necessarily trained to do, but it's an example of how soft power is so effective and oftentimes more effective than just sending in troops.
2: Often when, uh, well, my understanding of the Chinese Communist Party's uh, policy of military civil fusion is largely the idea of what I would call the fact that there really is no such thing as a Chinese private sector. And I noticed in the UK's recent decision... Uh, to welcome in Huawei, which I, I honestly view as a mistake. Even uh, UK's own cyber experts noted that they feared that, that the, Beijing could order Huawei to take certain actions in a future crisis. Absolutely. Do you believe the notion of a, a Chinese private sector is an outdated concept? Is there such a thing as a Chinese private sector? Well,
1: not in the terms that we understand it here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Without question. I mean, this is an authoritarian country where the Communist Party controls everything. And, and anything that they don't control, they can control if they want to. Um, so it's not to say that there aren't some companies operating in China that are effectively private right now. But we just don't know if tomorrow they literally get taken over by the party or so influenced by the party that they do whatever the party wants.
2: They might be one phone call away from no longer being a private company. That's Beijing right. Calls. I mean, That's can right. they say no to Beijing if Beijing calls? I wonder. No, I don't think they can. Yeah.
1: And, you know, you brought up uh, the UK and Huawei. Look, I'm with you. I think this is a major national security concern, but here's the problem. We don't have an alternative. You know, when we were in China, we met, uh, sorry, when we were in Thailand, we met specifically with the telecommunications authority and talked to them about their 5G plans and their upcoming auction. And they said, look, we want to run a fair competition. We're not taking China's side. We're not getting pressured by them. We're just running an open competition. But the problem is that America, you don't have any entrance in this competition.
2: My rebuttal to that, interested in your response, would be that suggesting some sort of moral national security equivalency between European or American companies and a Chinese company is maybe a bit short-sighted. No, I'm
1: not suggesting that at all. Yeah. I'm just saying we literally do not have no, any- no, I, no, I mean, no, not a criticism but, of you, yeah. a
2: criticism of that position that perhaps they're putting forward.
1: Well, but I mean, look, I, it's not that they don't necessarily- I mean, look, it's not that these countries, like the UK, is. it's not that they're not looking at these concerns as well. But there are some technology offerings that we just literally don't have. Like we don't have an alternative yeah. to some no, of these we're Huawei behind. offerings, no, and, and, and yeah. we're, we're behind. And, and yeah. so we've got to fix that. Um, this is something that, that Jim Banks and I are specifically mm. working on. We asked about it at the last hearing. Yeah. Uh, we're gonna to try to work on some legislation to address this.
2: Have you had any constituents in your district who have been the victims of intellectual property theft from Chinese entities? Oh, absolutely. Or, uh, or espionage efforts to try to steal technology that they're gonna use against our warfighters potentially? In a well, first of conflict? all, you're
1: talking to one. I mean, yeah, my yeah. security yeah. clearance yeah. data was stolen through the uh, Office of Personnel Management hack a few years ago. Uh, yours probably was too. It was a massive hack. Uh, so the Chinese are getting into all of our private lives and they're absolutely stealing technology um, from companies across the spectrum, but especially defense uh, tech companies, and we have a lot of those in my district.
2: Uh, former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates famously uh, said, and you've probably heard this quote: "You know, when it comes to predicting the nature and location of our next military engagement since Vietnam, our record has been perfect. We've never once gotten it right." <laughs> so, if we true. have such a horrible track record on preventing future conflict, how do we know? what kind of weapons we need to be developing today or what kind of doctrine and operational concepts we should be developing?
1: Well, look, this is always a challenge. And we might not know exactly what battlefield this fight with China will take place, but it's already happening. It's already happening on the internet and we're not prepared. It's already happening in 5G and we're behind. So there are some places that are pretty obvious today where we need to invest. But I also think that there are some places where we know uh, there's going to be uh, a pr- But there are also some places where I think we know competition with China is going to be a challenge in the future. Artificial intelligence, for example. China has made a huge commitment to that. We don't know exactly what an AI-enabled battle is going to look like sitting here today. But I think everybody agrees that it's going to be part of our military's future.
2: One, one of the, uh, congressmen, one of the things that came up in your recent hearing that I found interesting was the idea of, you know, we're going to put a lot of the information on the cloud and this is going to uh, enable commanders to have better uh a better view of what's happening on the battlefield, better situational awareness than we've had in the past. But at the same time, that connectivity between the tactical forces and and the central databases may be in question if you're in a conflict with China. So Chris Bros talked about pushing uh, artificial intelligence and, and, uh, and, and capability down to the lowest level, yet we see some efforts trying to consolidate things on the cloud. Um, do you see a tension there, or how do we, how do we manage that?
1: Challenge? You've described the tension very well, and it was something that I that I hit on because it passed hearings. In fact, uh, I think it was in that first hearing um, with Michelle Flournoy and Jim Talent that they talked about the advantage America has in having extremely adept communications and be able to coordinate not only amongst our different forces but with our allies. Uh, Chris Bros brought up the point that that's exactly the what China's going to go after. And so we've got to make sure that while we don't necessarily take away that advantage and we recognize that that is one of our strengths, we can't be wholly dependent on it.
2: The Pentagon submitted its fiscal year 2021 budget request yesterday, as you know, and I'm, I'm sure you look forward to scrutinizing that as a member of the House Oversight Committee, and the um, House Armed Service Committee, the key oversight committee for the Pentagon. Um, The proposal includes what the Pentagon calls, quote, the largest research, development, test, and evaluation budget in its history, $106 billion. They name a couple areas of focus, which include, as you've mentioned, hypersonics, microelectronics, 5G, autonomy, artificial intelligence. Is that the right amount and the right areas of focus? No, it's not even close. close. They're
1: they're saying it's the largest number. They're saying it's the largest dollar amount, Uh kind of leaving out things like inflation and what percentage (laughs) of of the budget it really is. What we need is for... a much bigger percentage of the DOD budget to be devoted to the future. Mm
2: excellent and i guess uh, my last question uh, for you would be you know uh, not wanting to get ahead of the final report of the task force what are kind of the one or two things that you think we need to do to close the gap between the defense innovation sector that we have and the defense innovation sector that we need to ensure that our warfighters like like you've been in the past, have everything they need to prevail in future conflicts you know
1: it's an excellent question and i don't know that we're quite ready to answer it yet yeah. because we have so many things that we need to fix in this realm I don't want to presuppose what the priorities will be of the task force because we haven't written the final report yet. But this is a key question that we're asking, and we need to know how uh, to make this work better in the future and to fundamentally be prepared for the challenges uh, that China and Russia in particular present.
2: Congressman, I'm so honored that you would join us for this discussion and your constituents are fortunate to have someone with your experience and the enthusiasm and focus you bring to this important issue that's going to determine whether our children and grandchildren are safe. So I, I give you my highest respect uh, for what you're doing and I hope you'll continue. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you very much. I've, I've got a 16-month-old daughter at home,
2: so I'm exactly. invested in this too. Exactly. All right. Well said. Thank you again. Take care. Okay.
0: Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas. Policy at FDD.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at FDD.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May. You've been listening foreign policy.